Hear the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and your teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Good morning. My name is Jonah. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here if you're visiting with us. Uh, if you want to know some of what's going on or ways you can be involved this week, the back of the bulletin has uh, a lot cooking. We couldn't fit it all on there, so you can, get, uh, you can download the Sojourn app. Just go to whatever app store, search Sojourn Collective, download it, hit New Albany. There's four other Sojourn churches in Louisville, so there's five total. So you want to make sure you hit New Albany, go to events, Everything that you could ever dream of is in there. I don't know if that's true. Probably there's some things you could dream of. Uh, the new Avengers movie isn't in there. So, but it's coming. But it's coming. Three hours long. God is so good. Oh, man. So, yeah, hopefully there's stuff on there that you can find. Um, be helpful. Take it home with you. Uh, we are covering a huge portion of Matthew chapter 5 today, verses uh, 17 to 48. And we didn't have... We just didn't want to endure 41 verses on the screen, couldn't fit in the bulletin. So it's, luckily it's in your Bible, though, if you brought a Bible. And if you didn't, it's in the seat back underneath you or in front of you, around you, whatever. If you don't have a Bible, you can take that with you. Uh, we're in a, a section called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and 7. And we're in verses 17 to 48 today. The goal of the Sermon on the Mount, we've said this for several weeks, is to create whole people. So that is taking a people who are divided in our affections, are the kind of hypocritical motives of our hearts, and Jesus will give us all kinds of different examples. Love God one day, and then we kind of bail on him the next day. It's to unify who we are and make us whole, happy people. And he, last week we talked about he, when that happens, when we live the Beatitudes and are transformed, we become salt and light. We, we go out and we make the world a better place. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful vision of what life is all about, the good life, uh, being healed, embracing our wholeness, and going and filling the world with the goodness of God. It's a beautiful, gorgeous privilege that we have. And the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5 are these wonderful notes of grace. The Beatitudes, which are all the blessed are, blessed are, blessed are that, that we've talked about, um, they all, they're meant to cultivate in us a posture of dependence and neediness. So what is the prerequisite for the Christian life? Do you know that you need him? Do you know that you need help? Do you know that you're, you're broken? And so God graciously saves. If we are aware of our neediness, then our eyes can be opened to this beautiful invitation of grace. So in essence, here's the first, let me summarize the first 17 verses, 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5 for you. You are needy, God is gracious. You are broken, God heals. You are transformed, God sends. It's this repeated ways of describing grace. And it really, it's been the whole book of Matthew up to this point. I mean, even John the Baptist back in chapter 1 says, repent because the kingdom of God is here. He doesn't say do all of this stuff to convince God to do something. He says, no, God's done something. 
So we get all of these themes of grace. And then you hit chapter, or chapter 5, you hit verse 17, and there can, there's almost a, an experience of whiplash because he, he says these intense commands. If you go through in your Bible or at home, whenever you feel like looking at it, uh, you get a teaching about anger. Let's think about this for a second. How nice would it be if Jesus said, you want to go to heaven? Don't murder anybody. I would feel pretty confident about that. I'm 36, yet to murder anybody. And I'm not certain, because who knows what happens. Pretty sure I'm not going to murder anybody. And the majority of us aren't going to murder somebody. Uh, thanks be to God. Jesus says, oh, you think this is not about murdering people? Actually, if you want to go to heaven, you can't even be angry with people. If you're angry with somebody in your heart, that's like murdering somebody. I, I spent 10 hours in my car yesterday, about four and a half of those in stop traffic. And that, that, is, that incites one to anger, being stopped on a major interstate, right? Like, so we go from all of these notes of grace to these intense commands, instructions. And if you read those verses, so some of our favorite things to talk about, like anger, like adultery, like divorce, like making promises, like revenge, you know, these are difficult, touchy subjects. And if you read what Jesus is saying here, it, it'll probably leave you feeling a bit overwhelmed or as though these things are unachievable. What happened to all of the grace in here? Well, I think in these verses, Jesus is calling us back to the heart of the Bible's message itself, which is God's desire to restore the hearts of people and heal a broken world. In Jesus' day, many people were skeptical of him, and they used these verses after the fact to kind of question his teaching. They would say he was just a, a charlatan, he was uh, trying to break from tradition or supersede scripture, and people use these verses as evidence because, again, I'm not trying to hide anything from you guys, it's in your Bible. He's, he basically says over and over, you know, you've read in the Bible that it says blah, 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 but I say this. Or, you've heard our ancestors say this, but I tell you this. And it looks like Jesus is breaking from the scriptures. And so some people today uh, will pit Jesus against the rest of the Bible. Have you ever encountered any of those people? I don't read Paul, I just read Jesus. And I'm like, who do you think told Paul what to say? Um, that's a side note, though. For, it's, it's an old technique. There's lots of heresies birthed out of people trying to pit Jesus against the Bible. Um, but you read some of this stuff, and it's like, Gosh, I've got the whiplash from grace to commands, and now it seems like Jesus is doing something different than what the Bible says. Um, understanding this passage, verses 17 through 20 in particular, it's absolutely crucial to understanding the entire Sermon on the Mount. 17 through 20, this is the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the big idea. This is the whole thing that Jesus is after. And he starts off by making it absolutely clear his position on the Scriptures. So he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So first, law, law or the prophets, this thing, it's a phrase you'll see a lot. Uh, that's shorthand for the Bible. So if you grew up in a youth group, and maybe you had the guy who would walk in and be like, oh, I forgot my sword in my car. And you're like, what? 
And there's this whole weird subculture where Christians call their Bibles their sword. Anybody know that? You don't have to out yourself, but you know those people? I love my sword in my car. And like, why are you bringing a sword? Uh, It's just saying law and the prophets. That was their way of summarizing everything that was written in the Bible. And so he's saying, clear as day, I have not come to abolish it. I haven't come to make it as though this never existed. I haven't come to invalidate it or like take a mulligan or a do-over. Rather, he says he's come to fulfill it. I think every week since we've been in Matthew now, we've talked about this idea of fulfillment somehow. Uh, what, what is he talking about? What does it mean to fulfill a book? There, it, the, the word under here, there's lots of big meanings. It means several different things, different nuances to it. And In one sense, it, it means um, to set something in its place or to, to put it back up on its foundation. Um, it can mean to make complete, to fill it all the way up, to restore it. Um, there's, there's a lot that's going on in the world. I think if you put it all together, I, what I would say Jesus is saying here is that he's come to make the law do what it was created to do. So over time, we misused the scriptures, we twisted it, things happened to it. Jesus has come to fulfill it, to make it do what it was created to do. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I think a lot of us in this part, part of the world who, who look like us and have been to churches that look like this, uh, see the law, the instructions of God as commands, a behavioral checklist of do this and don't do this, act this way. Um, that was never the goal of the law. Uh, it, it was certainly a glorious side effect. A, a lot of our laws in society, the reason that you know, there isn't rampant murder or nearly as much murder as there could be is because people took the law of God seriously and those became legal laws for society. So there's an element, there's a, there's a power to restrain evil that exists in the law of God and it keeps society functioning. But that was never the main thrust of it. All of the behaviors were, were kind of a side effect. The, the law wasn't created to make us act a certain way. So uh, if you thought trying to preach 41 verses was a lot, I've got a grand surprise for you. We're actually going to preach through the whole Bible today. So let's, we're going to put our helmets on and do some big Bible work here for a few minutes now to understand what is he talking about? What is the purpose of the law? So in the beginning, the betrayal that caused all this mess to unfold was not about some fruit. And it wasn't about an apple either. Some of you people are like, when Eve ate the apple, it wasn't an apple. And maybe it was an apple, but we don't know. It says a fruit. It was a piece of fruit. And now listen, God is not a tyrant orchard manager stressing about maintaining inventory. You know, it's not like he created the whole universe with his word and he's like, not my precious apple or whatever the fruit was. He said to them, if you eat this, bad things will happen to you. He wasn't worried about the fruit. They ate it. What is that? What is that when dad says, don't do this, and the kid does it anyway? A few weeks ago, or earlier this week, rather, uh, we have a newborn at home, two and a half-ish months old, and a five-year-old and a four-year-old, and they are, they're like the Incredible Hulk compared to him. They're very much stronger than the little guy, and I'm worried they're going to break him because um, they don't know how to control their affection. So the other day, we have a swing, which is like, for, in our family, that's our last-ditch prayer to please keep the child calm for a few minutes, or we're making dinner. And so our son is in the swing, and my daughter, if, it's okay if you don't know what my house looks like. Most of you haven't been in my house. I've got like one hallway in my house, and at the end of the hallway was the swing, and there's a bathroom at the other end of the hallway. Let's pretend that's the bathroom and this is the swing down there. Um, 
So my daughter's standing here, coming up to the swing. I'm about to go into the bathroom. I look down the hall and I say, sis, don't touch him in the swing. And then she takes another step and I say, sis, don't touch him in the swing. And she looks me dead in the eyes, four years old, and goes like this. <laughs> Rests just like the barest tip of her finger on the baby's foot. And now, internally, I'm not like, oh, no, she touched his foot. It's all over. What's gonna, his foot's going to fall off. You know, is the problem there the action or what the action reveals about what's cooking in the heart of my four-year-old? Right? So we can't make the mistake of thinking. God wanted the orchard on lockdown, and we snuck in and stole the apple and undermined his profits or something like that. The action of what did that reveal about our hearts? It revealed that we did not trust God, that our hearts were far from him. And, and thus begins the great mission of the scriptures, to restore the hearts of human beings. So we get a few chapters after that in Genesis chapter 6. Things get so bad, God wrecks the earth, destroys the earth with the great flood. And this is what we get about the motivation behind it in Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Isn't it wonderful? Not wonderful. Amazing, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. It doesn't say how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And in my mind, I'm like, what were they doing? And it doesn't say because they did this and this and this and this. We see other messed up stuff behaviors they do, but, but here when the whole world's about to be trashed, it, it's not about these specific behaviors. What's the problem God sees? The thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The hearts of men had become far from him. God sees the problem. Actions were bad, but that was because hearts were bad. So what does God require of the new humanity after the flood? He says, this is Deuteronomy 6, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your strength. What does God look to as he watches our lives? The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. May some of us in here know how to play the Christian game. You know what I mean? We're going to talk about that in Matthew chapter 6, where we know how to do the things that look Christian and good and spiritual to fit in. Why you want to fit in with the group of Christians, I don't know. Why you chose this to be the popular crowd, I don't know. But some of us really know how to look Christian. And God's like, you ain't got me fooled. I see right through all of the Bible studies, all of the, I see right through all of that, down into the, the core of who you are. He's looking for the heart. That is what he is assessing in our lives. What is the prayer of those in desperate need? We looked at this earlier in the liturgy. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. What's the most important reality that shapes and dictates your entire life? Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Do you... Can I go a couple more? Is this enough yet? We've only made it to Psalms and Proverbs. This, I mean, what, what makes God angry? What, he, what does he look at in people and it detests him? Here we go. The Lord detests people with crooked hearts, 
over and over and over. God is looking to the heart, assessing the heart, trying to transform the heart. What does God require of us to come home? Again, Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will never despise. What did God promise one day he would do? I will give them an undivided heart. I will put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Over and over, the the issue that God is seeking to deal with throughout the scriptures, throughout all of creation, is our hearts. Our hearts are our greatest problem. And crooked hearts give way to crooked lives. Crooked lives give way to crooked systems and cities that oppress and hurt and, I mean, just do all kinds of awful things over human history. And under the core of this is hearts that have gone far from God. The rules, the law of God was intended to reveal our broken, our crooked, our divided hearts so as to push us into dependence on God. Jesus is fulfilling the law by doing what it was created to do, expose the heart. The heart is the core of who you are. It's the deep seed of your longings, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, And Jesus is trying to help us see that is the issue of our lives. He places all of his teaching, the entire Sermon on the Mount, now in the context of Matthew 5, 20. This is what the Bible's been trying to teach us all along. Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the thesis statement. This is what Jesus, the main point, what everything else in 5 through 7 is dealing with. Unless your religious performance is even better than the teachers and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Never is the word we get. It literally means never. And then he summarizes this again at the end of this part, this section in verse 48. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So in his first major teaching, Jesus is like, you guys want to know how to get to heaven? Be perfect. Let's pray. (laughs) So listen, there is a greater righteousness demanded of you. And that is the demand of perfection. He moves from here to six teachings about what some of this means in your own soul. He'll move from that into religious behaviors. In each of the six teachings, Jesus is doing what the law was created to do. He's firing for effect here. There's a theme running through each one of these that have less to do with the specific things he's teaching and more so to do with the emotional realities he's trying to expose in us. In each one of these teachings, he's moving from a specific action to the heart that it reveals. You've heard it said you shouldn't murder, but don't even be angry. You see, from an action down to the heart, from a behavior down to an emotion, a motivation, a desire, You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, don't even lust from an action down to the heart. Because some of us can convince ourselves, right? I'm adultery free. 36 years, no adultery. I don't plan on having adultery in my life. If it's just about not committing adultery, we're good. 
And then he looks at us and it's like, well, really? Because it's actually about desiring someone who's not your spouse. It's about having lust for somebody that you're not married to. And as far as I know, nobody makes it out of life away from that. Over and over and over, he's exposing the heart of his listeners, increasing the requirements of the good life that they thought they knew so well. He's showing that all these actions that were previously prohibited in the law, we missed the intent, which was to expose our hearts. They were intended to expose, reveal that we have hearts that don't trust God. And in that exposure, they were intended to invite us to learn dependence on him. Embracing Jesus' words here will take you down one of two roads. And I don't know, maybe there's more. There's two that I can think of. The first road is the road of behavior and action, right? Which has two ditches on either side of the road. On one side is the ditch of legalism. So you see this. And Jesus says, be perfect. And you respond with challenge accepted. And you fill your life with shoulds and oughts. This is what you know, a lot of evangelical churches have been like for the last 40, 50 years. We fill our lives with a whole bunch of rules. You should do this. You should read the Bible. You should do this. You should serve. You should, you should, you should, you should. And we decide, some of you have a lot of energy and you're really diligent and disciplined. And you say, I'm going to do all of these things. That same road of action and behavior, though, the opposite side of the road is saying, I'm not going to follow any rules. That's license. I'm I'm still going to respond to this behaviorally with my actions, and I'm just going to throw off, I'm going to wine, women, whatever I want to do. I'm I'm just going to go for it, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, down, down that road of actions and behaviors, the inevitable result of that is exhaustion and failure. Every single time. The question is only how long will you go for it? How long will you be on that highway? Because on the road of legalism, you realize you will never behave well enough. Your life will get, so like, way to go, you haven't murdered anybody. You're not supposed to murder people, right? But like, way to go, you haven't murdered anybody. But have you ever wrestled with the bear of anger in your own soul? Have you ever had a pretty moral life not doing something that's really obviously wrong and you're just on fire internally and and you try to do something about that, eventually you'll get your life well enough in order with your actions, but internally you will be a mess and you won't know how to deal with it. You will never be perfect enough to satisfy the demands of that voice in your head telling you what you should be doing. On the other hand, the other ditch of license then result of that is it will never be enough either. Um, you will never be able to drink enough or fill in the blank enough. It'll keep you hungering for more and longing for more. And prolonged exposure to exhaustion and failure, it produces anger, fear, shame. What's the alternative though? If we can't make it in the road of our actions, what's the alternative? The alternative is to fall down. You think of David tearing open his shirt and saying, help me. To throw yourself completely on the mercy of God. To see yourself as helpless as you truly are. 
I don't know, if maybe you still think that you can change your heart. Maybe you still think that you have what it takes to fix the messes that you've made. Let the teaching of Jesus pierce you, push you into a posture of dependence and neediness, which for weeks now we've been saying is the very thing the Beatitudes are intended to do. As we follow them, they teach us how to depend on God, to put us in a posture of neediness before Him. And what is the promise of the Beatitudes? Of becoming a single-hearted person oriented towards God with our posture pointed towards Him. This, this is the summary Beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So, blessed, we, we talked about that meaning flourishing or alive. Truly human are the, the pure in heart. Truly human are those with single devotion towards God, for they will see Him. This is what we get from that posture of neediness and dependence, relying on the mercy of God. You get to come home again. The promise of the prophets become yours, which here's another verse about the heart of what Jesus would come and do. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities, not just some, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you, move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What, what Jesus is trying to make us feel and see is that yes, greater righteousness is required of you, but it's so much more than what you think it is. Therefore, no, you cannot achieve this greater righteousness. But thanks be to God, Jesus has achieved it for us. He came to fulfill the law, to put it in its place, to do what it was created to do, and he did all that it requires. And this is the message of the whole Bible. The result, author of Hebrews tells us, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, please see, not because, not, not because of our years of faithful church attendance. Fill in the blank. What is it for you? We have confidence to enter the most holy place because I never cheated on my wife. We have confidence to enter the most holy place because... No, we have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. That's a singular focused heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. He fulfilled the law for you. He did what it was created to do. And from there, he obeyed it fully. He was crushed and punished for you. He was raised for you. Do you feel your need of him? And if you do, then come to him. Fall on the mercy of God. Give God your divided heart and receive a whole heart. This becomes the orientation of the Christian life, the driver behind our actions, reorienting our hearts to God so that we might become who he created us to be. And I just want to give you two next steps for that, two practical ways um, that I think need to be a little necessarily ambiguous. Uh, the first, there's a dear friend of our church named Chuck DeGroat who wrote a book called Wholeheartedness. Um, he served our church faithfully for a long time, and we're grateful for him. He's a therapist and a, a seminary professor up in Michigan. And he wrote this book called Wholeheartedness, Busyness, Exhaustion, Healing the Divided Self. 
Uh, let the busy say amen. Anybody feel busy this week? The exhausted say amen. The divided self, you got one foot over here in the kingdom of God and one foot over here and I could really use a new car, you know what I mean? Or one foot at church and one foot on Zillow. Um, that's me at least. You ever feel that split, competing affections in you? So this is a, it's a beautiful, helpful book that's about how, what is the process, what does it look like to have our hearts oriented towards God, um, to become, experience the wholeness that we were created for, to live like the people God made us to be. We've, I don't know if we have any left. I didn't think after the first service. We have some at the welcome table that you can buy on your way out or you can order it wherever books are sold. Um, it's a wonderful book and would highly encourage, that, encourage you to do that. If you're not much of a reader, if you don't want to read it, that's fine. Um, in your bulletin this morning, you received um, an insert with the Beatitudes on it. What we want you to do is put that somewhere you'll see it every day. Put it in the front page of your Bible. Put it next to you. Everybody's got a morning routine. Put it next to the coffee machine. If you, you don't know what your morning routine is, just ask somebody. You know it's, you have one. It's the same thing you do every morning. And put this somewhere where you will see it and start your mornings with the Beatitudes. And initially... Just read through it and see, is there one that resonates with you? Is there one that stirs something in you? Um, and if so, I want you to stick with that from now until Easter and ask two questions of it. So maybe you already know which one it is. You can circle it. We gave you space on the bottom of that insert to write these two questions. The first question, so once you've landed on one beatitude, the first question, how has Jesus fulfilled this on my behalf already? So how do I see Jesus living out this promise in his life? Second, how is he inviting me to live this way today? So, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. How has Jesus done this? Answer that question. And then you say, God, how are you inviting me to be merciful today? All of these involve people. Who are you inviting me to? God, how did I see Jesus mourn? knowing that he would be comforted. What are you asking me to mourn? And, and see what happens. You'll find contradictions and inconsistencies, but God can hold that. Find one beatitude. Spend between now and Easter with it. The, the good life that Jesus invites us into is wholeheartedness, living as who we truly are because of who Jesus truly is. It's a life de of devotion towards God not rooted in circumstances, but rather rooted in resurrection. A life of devotion rooted in circumstances, one that says, when I wake up on fire for Jesus, I will read the Bible. A life rooted in resurrection is one that wakes up and says, I will spend time with Jesus because he is risen. You see the difference? I will serve in church because I feel like it. I will do what the scriptures tell me to because I feel like it. Or we will do these things because he is risen. So our, our, I guess our response is to see Christ fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf, to see him lifted up on a cross on our behalf, to see him risen from the dead on our behalf, and this will move us to trust him and follow him. When it feels foreign, when it feels confusing, we embrace wholehearted devotion to him, taking his yoke upon us, living the Beatitudes. And listen, the Beatitudes lived out over time will reshape our hearts. They will produce wholeheartedness, and we will experience the freedom and the power of 
humans truly alive. So week after week, we root ourselves in the great reality of resurrection to anchor our souls and give us hope, to give us confidence to trust Jesus as we move forward. So we remember the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, he thanked God for it, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this remembrance of me. After the meal, he took a cup of wine, said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so this is the invitation to lay all of our performance down, all the things that we, we strive to hold on to or, or to show to God as evidence that we belong or that we're loved by him. And instead, we say the body of Christ was broken, the blood of Christ was shed, so I can draw near with confidence. Do you feel the freedom of that? Like, it's not all the things you're carrying. It's not all the failures that you bring in. It's not your successes. It's not your dreams or your goals or your plans. All of that weight that we carry thinking we have to hold this or be perfect, we can lay that down and say, no, with confidence I now draw nigh because the blood of Christ was shed for me and he's risen. What sweet freedom there is there. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. There'll be stations in the back and up front and there'll be a, a gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I will pray for us, and then, Christians, let's come celebrate our hope together. Let's pray.